Despite President Biden's declaration that the war is over in Afghanistan, and it is most certainly not, and despite his claim that the extraction of civilians and Afghan allies was a huge success, all evidence is to the contrary. It's been nothing short of a deadly debacle, underplanned, undermanned, underresourced, and hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans and, of course, Afghans were left stranded. Even the translator that once saved Joe Biden's life has been left behind to meet his fate at the hands of the Taliban, a strategic and foreign policy blunder writ large. Canada's response, too, has been shameful. Too little, too late. Slow, bureaucratic, risk-averse, and dependent, as we often are, on the kindness of our NATO allies. So, to put it kind of bluntly, how the hell did this happen? Uh, we're going to talk to someone that I truly respect, worked with. We, we shared an anchor desk at one point, Kevin Newman, a journalist that has worked in Canada, in the United States for ABC. He's traveled to war zones, and uh, he has been working this time around with the Veterans Transition Network, writing some incredible uh, material about what's been really going on, but also actively working to try and bring uh, Afghan uh, our Afghan alleys out. Kevin, great to see you. Great to see you too, Pam. You were sitting there in the middle of the woods somewhere, and I'm, <laughs> I'm in the middle of the lake in Saskatchewan. So yeah, I'm, I, 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 I'm fortunate, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a little place to decompress. So very different from what's been filling my head the last couple of weeks. It's um, for those who haven't uh, been able to find the articles, please check it out on the line. I think you, it's on Substack. Is that right? Yeah, Jen Gerson, uh, who um, I helped uh, sort of flower into a national voice when I was at yeah. CTV. She was one of the columnists on the show that I had. Um, she now runs a really interesting site uh, for really sharp opinion, not terribly partisan, but um, people who know stuff. And I, I enjoy writing for her. Okay, so you do know stuff, and there's a couple, a couple of stories by way of example that I want you to uh, explain to our viewers and listeners so that they get what's going on. One is the story of Abdul, and the other is the story of the gas station. So start with Abdul. Um, so Abdul, it turns out, was once a translator for the uh, chief of the defense staff, um, and uh, is one of many, many stories that uh, this volunteer network has been uh, watching and communicating with uh, over the past couple of weeks, mostly through WhatsApp. And um, it's, it's, it's incredibly sad. I, I, he was in Kandahar, and Kandahar, as you know, Pam, is where most of our forces uh, spent much of the war. Um, we had about a thousand people that we were watching in Kandahar trying to get them through the uh, immigration process that had been set up by the government. And... Uh, Ran out of time in Kandahar. The Taliban arrived, started to cut off cell so service. So he moved up to one of the safe houses that this volunteer group of Canadians has put together and financed. Uh, there's a bunch of them around Kabul. And uh, he's been there now for a month. And it was one of those people who was in that melee uh, at the airport in Kabul before the bombs went off. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, um, he was, um, his brother had made it over before. Yeah. He had made it uh, before to Canada as well uh, under the uh, old program that ended in 2016. So, but he had never allowed to bring his family. He was never allowed to bring his wife, his children. So he was trying to bring his family back when the Taliban route began. 
and he got trapped there. And, um, and what ended up happening, and this happened to many, many people, was uh, the immigration ministry in Canada would accept applications for whole families, so lists of names, usually between five or six names, sometimes larger, um, but they approved them piecemeal, bit by bit. So um, he was at the airport uh, had to f- and then faced the Canadian immigration official that was there, and they said, well, you can come, your wife can come, um, your child can come, your sister can't come, and his sister was um, breastfeeding a child in, 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 in the melee there and uh, had two children of her own. So she got on the plane, had to leave her two children behind with her husband, and the families were separated. And so there were many, many cases of families going through piecemeal. Some made it out, some did not. Just a terrible Sophie's choice that they had at the airport. Do you wait for the paperwork to complete as a family? Or do you take the last, what you thought was and turned out was, the last chance to get out? And, and, and he did, but he's not, he's not happy with uh, who he had to leave behind. This is the the thing that I think that ordinary people are just find, finding so puzzling, which is all these promises, and we hear it here and we hear it in the U.S., no man will be left behind, no person will be left behind. Hundreds and thousands of people are being left behind. And they are the people, Pam, who are generally usually at the back of the bus. Uh, we did bring some people out. We brought uh, Canadian citizens out. We brought some uh, permanent residents, people with Canadian passports. They were easy to get out because they had Canadian passports. Mm-hmm. Nobody could stop them um, for, for that. But the, the Afghans uh, who went through the special immigration process that was only established about five weeks ago, very few of them got out. They're mostly all still there. And, and there seemed to be sort of a, um, you know, a four-star approach to some people. I'm um, getting out. And then these people have been left there. And, and even when I listen to the foreign affairs minister now in the briefings, they're talking about the 1,250 Canadian passport holders that they, that they weren't able to get out in time. Well, there's about 5,600 people in that immigration paperwork pipeline. Um, you know, we think maybe a couple of hundred of those got out, maybe 14%. Uh, but that's 85% that have still been left. Uh, in Kabul and uh, in a situation which is uh, getting, you know, more dangerous by the day now that there are no foreign forces there. It's uh, it's quite extraordinary when we think, and you and I have both seen things on the ground in Afghanistan, but why we would give up the Bagram airfield where we could have controlled that and got people there um, is shocking. That seemed to surprise everybody. I mean, I remember that was when it, for me, Pam, it went, Oh, they've left so soon. Like everyone had this sort of 31st of August and then the American military just announced one day, even the Afghan government said it was surprised by this, that, hey, we're out. And that was frankly the signal to the Taliban that it had some time uh, to continue on on, on its plan. I mean, this was was the strangest thing I've ever seen. There was a peace deal signed between uh, former U.S. President Trump uh, and the Taliban to give them a year to withdraw American forces. He basically circled the date on a calendar, and then Biden continued it. Uh, and then they pulled out like a good six weeks before they said was the deadline, and that just created a massive vacuum. And so the Taliban um, moved in quickly, knowing that the ability of the American forces had been reduced. You know, we saw towards the end, they had to pour 8,000 people back in. Exactly. So it, it's, it's very, very, I've never seen anything, uh, uh, you know, except perhaps the, you know, the aftermath of the fall of Iraq, yeah. where there had been so little 
thought and planning into what comes next. This is this is what's so shocking is that when you when you know that there's a deadline, certainly when I was on the Afghan committee, the Canadian committee to decide our our role in Afghanistan, what I mean, the one thing we said is you can't ever leave and put a fixed date unless you have all your ducks in a row. We had no ducks in a row, none. No, and they, uh, you know, when 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 the Bagram base was abandoned by the Americans so quickly, it didn't take anybody who had been in Afghanistan or who knew people a, a second to go, oh, there's the protection that has kept them from being targets of the Taliban for so long. Um, you know, Canada left in 2014. We haven't been that protection, but the Americans have, and sure. um, it was it was it was stunning uh, at that point, and it wasn't hard. And it shouldn't have really been hard for anyone to go, oh, we got to get going because um, this is not going to end well. Uh, there's also reporting uh, over the last couple of days that that the Taliban actually said, look, to the Americans, you can keep control of Kabul while you, while you get everybody out. We'll stay on the edges. And they said, no, thanks. We'll just take the airport. We can manage. Th this is well, insanity. <laughs> Yeah, well, we're, I mean, trying to figure out which Taliban is in charge yes, is, it, yes. is an interesting question because it's, I mean, we tend to think of it as the Taliban. Yeah, no, but, no. You know, no, there's no. 38 different tribes, and the one that seems to be operating and have control uh, in Kabul has shown some restraints so far. Um, from what we hear that's happening in Kandahar, that section of the Taliban has not been uh, kind, and we are getting reports of people who have been, who have been killed with, with an association yeah. with, with Canada. Um, so yes, they, they, they've been taking a, frankly, I think a, a page out of, if you remember back Pam, when, uh, Iran, uh, fell, uh, to the, uh, Islamists mm -hmm. and they allowed uh, a period where they were saying good things and they right. allowed Westerners to leave. Um, they didn't allow many of their own people. And then once the Westerners leave, then the oppression began. Yeah. So no, no, you know, sure. we'll see. We'll see what the days ahead bring. Uh, this is now fully in Taliban control. There is no counterbalancing force there now, other right, than right. we're getting some reports of um, people trying to um, Afghan um, militias trying to fight the Taliban and places outside. Yeah. yeah. No, that that this is the problem, and anybody who thinks the Taliban of any version is going to change its spots is is wrong. Um, and women and children. And that's that's the other thing. We have left the most vulnerable behind. We're not even sure who is coming out, who the Americans took out, whether, if I can put it this way, it's the right Afghans. Are we, are we at least getting our allies, the people that put their lives on the line for us at the front of the line? Yeah, no, we haven't. Uh, frankly, uh, they have been at the, at, at the back of the of the immigration line. And, you know, early on in this, um, there was this group of us, myself, uh, three retired generals who commanded the forces yeah. in uh, Afghanistan and some pretty good high operating uh, soldiers who, who want to remain in the background. And, um, you know, uh, what what we what we proposed at the beginning was you don't need a complicated process. There mm -hmm. is a loyalty test. And there are Canadians who are willing to put their hands up and say, that was my guy. Here's the proof. Can I help yeah. you move this through the process? Because, you know, um, this isn't someone, these were people who were strangers to us. These were people no, who were well known and, and many friendships across the country in, in the military, in journalism, in the aid processes. But, um, I mean, quite frankly, we, there was a group that turned over about 300 files that they had built up called the Afghan Canadian Interpreters Association. They'd done all the work. 
and they've handed it over to the immigration ministry and said, here, you don't need to start from scratch. We've, we've done the work, please use it. And uh, as far as, and that, that's, that's the last, frankly, uh, we heard from them for a long time. And they started to start over. Uh, instead of the, in my view, they could have they could have had a head start with all the work that was being done by volunteers already. And and we're also told that those that were uh, granted the special immigration visas, the SIVs, as they they call them, that when the embassy started to shut down, they shredded all the documents. So if they were in process, it was it was shredded. Yeah, I I, I don't I don't I hadn't heard that, but what I can say is that. Um, the day the Taliban was rolling in, um, Canada withdrew its ambassador, it withdrew all of its embassy staff, it withdrew its military attaches. We were unique in that. Every yeah. other country kept a small group there. And it turned out yeah. that was really important because that following week and a half was when negotiations started with the Taliban, negotiations with the Americans. We had no eyes and we had no boots on the ground for a, a critical week, which was the week that the rescue was being set up. So by the time we went back in with a small force of the military, there was no groundwork that had been done. We were, we were, we were developing relationships uh, very late in the process. And so Canada, frankly, got kicked to the end of the process because we weren't there initially to, to be in on it. And I think that cost many, that, that cost us time and, and it cost us the ability to rescue these people. Yeah. And it will cost them their lives in in many cases. So just, I, I want to come back to the gas station story because it's so emblematic of so many things that went wrong, but, but the Trudeau government, and this again, I'm, I'm trying not to be partisan here, canceled the special immigration stream that was created under the Harper government, created a different system, but we're talking since 2016. I know, you know, that soldiers are, uh, special forces people, our pilots, they have all come back and asked the government, as you've said, to help. Let's get this process kick-started. Let's not wait till the last 15 minutes on earth. We've had years to actually do this, not just months, not just days, not just hours. Yeah. I mean, Canada, this hasn't been our finest hour. I mean, right from the very beginning, um, it took a fair bit of lobbying uh, for the then Harper government to create a program. They brought over yeah. 800 um, uh, interpreters, but they couldn't bring their families, so they were separated, which was, which was hard. And then there was nobody for many, many years. Uh, um, and, and the Trudeau government did mothball it uh, in, in 2016. So initially, when we were advocating, what they were saying was, well, they can come through the normal immigration stream, they can apply to be refugees, but Pam, you know that takes months yeah. it takes lots of money with lawyers wasn't practical yeah. for these people and um and so they did finally create a stream and then as you know as i reported and others have as well it, it quickly became bogged down in a, a degree of paperwork that because it was all driven from ottawa it couldn't be driven from Kabul anymore um that uh you know uh, frankly had a level of absurdity to it Mm -hmm. um, you know, they were pulling people into the open to get biometric thumbs, even though they were in hiding and the Taliban knew exactly where the Canadian embassy was. So it was, it was, uh, I, I think overall, and, 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 you know, you've covered the Ottawa scene and been part of it a lot longer than I have, but they didn't create a task force to coordinate government response. So right. they had the immigration ministry, they had the defense department and they had global affairs and they weren't talking to each other. 
Right. So what happened at the gas station was the immigration ministry sent out texts to 10 families and that ended up being about, you know, 100 people that said, quickly, go to the airport, your flight's here. So they get out of the safe houses that the Canadian uh, public has, 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 um, has fundraised for. Uh, they the make their way like you have created not the yeah, government well, others yeah yeah but yeah so they get out of the safe houses they have to walk because there is no transportation provided uh by the canadian government and many other countries did provide it so that they wouldn't have to walk through taliban checkpoints with targets right. on their backs but they did they got through they were beaten uh the taliban did not to our knowledge kill anybody but they did beat them and then they got to this gas station area where they were told to wear red and and wait for someone to come and after 40 hours uh, being in the open sun under a gas bar, um, these families, these children, women, elderly, nobody ever came. Nobody even gave them a bottle of water. We did finally. We, we, we arranged for some water to be delivered. But for 40 hours, they waited about 100 meters from the gate that they were told to go to, and they heard nothing. And nobody came out. Um, there were a small group at that time of Canadian soldiers and some um, civil servants. I don't know what they were doing. They were behind the wire. Right. But finally, at, 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 at that point in the, in, the, uh, in the event, we didn't know what else to tell. I mean, we were worried about a humanitarian crisis because children were getting quite ill. And so they went back to their house and waited to hear that again. And we had a couple of incidents of that where people were being sent to airport for a jet that wasn't there and a process that wasn't ready. And then go to a hotel or as you say, wear red or do this. Or at one point, we even announced that there'd be a new text line in Ottawa that these folks should just call directly to Ottawa. Yeah, and, and we tried it. Uh, there, was, there was somebody who, um, who answered the phone finally, and that was after a little bit, who basically said, basically sent people to a website. So they got to talk to a human being. That was an improvement. But they didn't get, throughout this whole process, and even to this day, Pam, they still don't get any indication of whether they've been approved to come to Canada. The first indication they got was the text that said, go to the airport now. I think what what really uh, burns too is I mean we watch the French. It, most countries have these C-17s, the big globe masters. You can put an entire town in there if you choose to. Uh, they they brought buses. Uh, the French use those buses to go and pick people up to break through the gates and get them onto planes. This daring raid by the Ukraines the other day that scooped up a bunch of people and just got them on a plane and pointed the guns back at the Taliban and said, you know, I dare you. Like the uh, Americans that were left on the ground, I know broke protocol and chain of command and helped people to do this. And and I just feel like here we are once again on the international stage, you know, dependent on the kindness of strangers. Could we put some of our people on your plane? Could you help us out here? Because we have not stood up. Yeah, that was definitely the relationship they tried to embed with the American military, which, as you know, is typical of, of what the Canadian uh, military um um, sees as, as the best route. Um, some of the information Mostly we got because we sent them in there ill-equipped and Ill, you know, that's with, without, with, yeah, yeah, we were not we were not a large force. That's absolutely no. true. Yeah. Um, and um, and then the cooperation with the Americans seemed to break down. Uh, the gate that we were at, they sealed. They turned it into a gate to bring in other people. And so then we started to cozy up to the Brits, and the Brits uh, helped us for a little bit, but then they had to take care of their own people. So it's, it's hard, you know, when, you know, good soldiers arrive and want to get the right things done, 
it's hard when there's very few of you and there's these large militaries that are already in full gear and executing. I was just reading last night about the Pineapple Express, as it's called, uh, the Special Ops Vets U.S., who who basically just did that. They just they went in. Right. I mean, they were coordinating from the U.S., but they made it happen. They found secret gate at the airport. They used code words for these people, not like standing up and can we take a biometric thumbprint, as you say, but protected them. Yeah, that was pretty audacious. <laughs> um, we, we, you know, um, we were a small group of uh, maybe twelve people, so yeah. there were no missions likely likely from <laughs> us, and we didn't have the ability to to get lift and and, yeah. and you know, veterans in the U.S. had been had been advocating in the same way that veterans in Canada had for a very long time, yeah. and had very similar frustrations uh, trying to deal with a bureaucracy that didn't seem to be responding with the proper level of alert. Uh, I think there was an understanding that these people were in trouble. I don't know that anybody ever acted as if these people could be dead. And yeah. and that was the thing that was um, uh, really frustrating is, you know, just to understand that this this was so extraordinary. I don't I can't remember in my lifetime a situation where we were trying to pump people through an incredibly difficult process, knowing, as we did, that um, they were known to the Taliban and could very well... Um, you know, pay for their association with Canada with their lives. This is what, of course, troubles everyone now that there is no exit point. I mean, to tell people to go to Pakistan, you'd have to go over a set of mountains for starters. Um, you know, those kinds of issues to just, if you can get somehow to a third country, uh, we'll have your back. I mean, it's ludicrous. Yeah, it's tough. Um, and there are so many scam artists that have come now. There's people yeah. that we know of that are saying, you know, for $1,500, we'll get you to Pakistan. And they never get there. They just take the money. There's, yeah. there's now um, info, info uh, war stuff starting, uh, things that look like they're coming from the government of Canada but aren't. Somebody's trying to corral them in certain places, which is dangerous, dangerous thing. So these yeah. poor people are left without any way to leave. They've, they, they've got um, criminal elements. They, they know that the Taliban, in some cases, knows who they are. Um, and it's, 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 it's heartbreaking to still be in touch with them. This is, for all intents and purposes, a surrender. <laughs> uh, I don't know uh, how else to describe it. The Taliban, in all its many forms, is now one of the uh, most has most, some of the most sophisticated military equipment of any military in the region. I think it's $90 billion worth of helicopters. And a whole lot of planes. Now, they, they probably won't be able to maintain them for long because they don't have the infrastructure for that. But yeah, and they've been backed, of course, by the, by the uh, Pakistan, elements of the Pakistan military as yeah. well. So, you know, these are not, um, you know, they're not like ISIS in that they're sort of roving bands. They're they're much more sophisticated in, and I mean, look at, look at what they were able to do in a matter of 10 days. Yeah. So the notion and the promise that we heard again from, from the president that, you know, any American that wants to come out, we'll get you out. I just don't know how. The Americans might have the capacity. They may be, I mean, they have been negotiating with the Taliban throughout this. Um, I don't. I don't know that the Canadian government has. Uh, the right. Canadian government's position has been that they're and they are listed as a terrorist organization. They should not be negotiated right. with. Um, however, 
they are now the government of Taliban. There are still 1,200 Canadian passport holders there and 5,000 people who uh, are in the immigration stream. Um, if, you know, the CIA was talking to the Taliban, uh, elements of the U.S. military have been talking to the Taliban, it seems like they're the only game in town to be able to uh, do anything at this point. So do you think what we will see is these clandestine operations done by volunteers and and military veterans who have ways and means of getting um, modes of transportation accessible? Maybe. Um, I don't know of any Canadian operations like that. Um, yeah, you know, no, I mean, there's a, there's, um, you know, there's a mercenary class in that part of the world of former special forces people that have left the military and are, are um, you know, uh, muscle for hire. Yeah. Um, it's possible some of that will be used. Uh, what we don't know yet is what form the Taliban government will take, uh, whether the reprisals will start. Um, you know, it's it's still an incredibly dangerous situation there. We talked with um, Major General Dennis Thompson. I know that you're, you know, he's part of the group trying to make things happen. Um, he was most concerned about how bureaucratic we seem to be in this country in the face of crisis. We want people to fill out their forms. We want uh, we want to make sure nobody extras on the plane if they don't have a seat belt you know, when the option is staying in Afghanistan and having your head cut off, a seatbelt seems like kind of a, a, a minimal thing. Is that, do you see that as the larger problem or is it a question of political will or all of the above? Um, probably all of the above. I mean, I think what, um, it, 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 it was, it was, Surprising to me, and Pam, you know, I've, I've covered Parliament Hill for three different networks various times, yeah. you know, um, uh, aware of the way it works. Um, it, it seemed to me that there were, the alarm bells were not going off. Yeah. Um, anywhere. And anywhere. And that there just seemed to be a, you know, that was a long time ago kind of feeling to it and um, no sense of urgency. I don't know why that is, uh, you know, maybe the fact that nobody's had proximity, you know, maybe that's one of the things that being in an office together might have created better alarm bells that somebody and would have conversations for sure. Conversations yeah. would have happened. Um, nevertheless, uh, it wasn't hard to see because honestly, every other country had a program in place to um, rapidly process and extract. Not many countries did well with it. Australia didn't. UK didn't. US didn't. But we didn't have a program till the very end of this. We were the last ones to create a, an immigration path. So we compressed the timeline anyway. And then into that timeline, we just couldn't seem to get people to look at a process that was substantially different from any other normalized refugee process. We couldn't, we couldn't succeed in saying these are extra extraordinary circumstances. You yeah. have people who will, who will vouch for these people. You yeah. have employment records for these people. You know yes, they work for exactly. you. You know, that kind of stuff. They were on the payroll, yeah. That's they were what, on your payroll. Yeah. yeah. So so the, the Afghans that have come, we, we just don't know, um, you know, whether they, well, we're pretty certain it's not all those folks. that We have taken in refugees, but that's a separate issue. Yeah, and, you know, I will say the government, uh, you have to really dig through the context on the numbers. Yeah, uh, there's been a lot of discussion of 20,000 refugees 
And I think people might have assumed this is great. We're taking 23,000 people out of Afghanistan right now. That's not what that program is. No. The program is for people who have already left Afghanistan several months ago or in refugee camps in Tajikistan and Turkey. And, and, exactly. And it is so, not 20,000 today. Yeah. It's not 20,000 of these people who have targets yeah. on their back. And, yeah. uh, you know, the government's own numbers say that there's about 1,000 Afghans that they have repatriated. But how many of those are people who are in Afghanistan and how many Afghans were in the other areas? They're not breaking that down. So, yeah. you know, I, this 3,700 number that's put out, um, it's not clear. It says that they were 3,700 included people they facilitated transport for. And then they don't tell us what that definition is. Facilitation of transport. Is that transport yeah. or is that sending an email to go to transport? I don't know. Well, so, like, sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say it's like um, a lot of a lot of the communications around this um, has been vague and I think intended to uh, pro uh, provide a, a picture that is perhaps um, shows uh, a better outcome than in fact exists. Yeah, I mean, we're in the middle of an election, so we understand the government doesn't want any hard truths here. It will uh, it will not help their cause. Uh, and even the Pentagon spokesman in the U.S. kind of talking about, well, we always have Americans in foreign countries that need help and we get them out. I mean, these are not people whose planes got canceled uh, after their two week stay in Cancun, right? No, they are people that left it too late. And system, yeah. Yeah, I mean, history is filled with, you know, I often ask myself, and I'm sure you have too, like, what, what if that was me? How easily would I give up my house? How easily would I say goodbye to my family? How easily would I run out of the country knowing that I was leaving all this behind? So some of these people left it too late. Um, it's true the Taliban took over more quickly in the ANA uh, Afghan National Army folded a lot more precipitously than just yep. what anybody anticipated. But, you know, it's um, whether you're a reporter in a war zone or, or um, an individual, uh, you don't want to be the last one out because inevitably what happens is what we're seeing here. And that's the doors close faster than you can imagine. I heard a soldier um, the other day say that he was struggling with purpose hmm. that for all of those the fight that they uh canadians and and nato allies fought they had a mission um i'm extraordinarily proud of what our men and women on the ground did i witnessed it i watched it and they were given very um little resource and backup to deal with. Eventually, we got some airlift and all, and all of that. But I'm wondering, and you're working with veterans groups, and, and I am close as well, um, when you hear a soldier say, I'm struggling with purpose, this has profound impact on everything going forward. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of veteran friends, and they've been very quiet um, and checking. And this has been incredibly painful for all of them. Um, to to not be able to help the men who kept them safe, who they mm -hmm. bonded with. These interpreters wear uniforms. Um, these were really deep, deep friendships. And to hear the cries of like, where are you? Why can't you help is extraordinarily painful, not only for veterans, but for journalists and aid workers and many others who have been going through this. But for veterans in particular, um, especially ones who have suffered uh, the, the, the moral injury yeah. Of, of that war. Um, the moral injury 
got a whole lot deeper uh, these past this past month when at the end of the day you know uh, we, we we couldn't we couldn't save that many people and we couldn't pull them out and so um, you know there's been a lot of very caring conversations uh, men and women checking in with each other um, yeah. making sure you're okay but uh, this is this is very very painful for a lot of Canadians I watched our and, and went into some of the schools that our soldiers had built for young girls um, learning how to read and write for the first time so there's been a generation uh, in the last 20 years of these girls that have had access um, we talk a lot about gender equality in Canada and democracy and all of that, but, but we're leaving them there. There will be no schools. <laughs> no, there won't be. And, uh, and there are like um, women judges uh, that we didn't get out. There's, yeah. uh, you know, women political leaders that we didn't get out. Um, there's a documentary that I'm uh, working on that will be uh, airing on September 10th that uh, we looked back at some of the reporting from Afghanistan and, you know, after what happened last week, we had to, we had to fuzz out all the women that were in our reporting yep. 10 years ago because we can't be assured that their safety is there anymore. And it was, it was, I was sitting with the editor and the editor was a, a refugee from Iran and it was, uh, we were crying through it all. Just, we had to eliminate the identities of these women for their own safety, just in television in Canada, even. Yeah. Um, and so I can't imagine how much fear they face because there is you're right there's an entire generation of women that has grown up understanding that they had a more of a voice than they 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 had under the taliban and um i don't i can't imagine their terror what are you thinking what are, what is the next step for you you're working on this you're just going to keep working you're as you say doing this documentary um trying to keep these issues alive and well i've always been concerned about that, you know, in Canada, we don't have a strong relationship with our, with our military, the bases are off hidden in other places, we don't see people in uniform walking up and down our streets as you do in other countries, and that we're losing that connection. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, we, we didn't have a connection, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, it was, yeah. you know, uh, war was something fought by previous generations, yeah. covered by previous generations of journalists, you know, occasionally, you know, you get parroted into the Falklands, or I'd get parroted into yeah. Iraq, but it was a very short period of time. But there is now a generation of war correspondents in Canada. Yeah. So um, I don't know, I, I, I don't know quite what to quite what happens at this point. Um, it's going to be very difficult for the Canadian military where it's deployed in the future to get local staff in hot zones who are exactly. going to, um, you know, wonder, well, why would I work for you if this is what happened in Afghanistan? I think yeah. that's going to be something they're going to have to deal with. Um, and as far as for Canadian soldiers, I think there's a whole lot of um, uh, very sad feelings and um you know they're 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 having to do a lot of work on themselves to not be uh, to not sink deeper into into depression if they're already in it. Yeah, for sure. When's uh, where's the documentary air? It's on Global, my yeah. old station from a while. Your old network, yeah, yeah. yeah. It runs uh, it runs on September 10th, Friday oh. at 10 p.m. And it's a look back at 20 years of disruption <laughs> and how you know that newscast, Global National, was 
born the week of 9-11 and for 20 yeah. years just ended up cause, uh, covering, you know, wars, climate change, just massive levels of disruption that have been part of a conversation for two decades. And it's hard. I mean, I, you know, I went to New York after 9-11 and it, it's hard to even get people to respond. I mean, the government has said they're not in this country, have said they're not really marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11. They're going to wait for the 25th as if we were talking about, you know, a wedding's anniversary celebration like this is well it, and it turns out that like the bookend on that 20 years was this month uh, exactly. you know, it, it is 20 years to the day that the, yeah. the series of events that were sparked by that awful attack uh, on manhattan and the pentagon um the final chapter was written last week and it wasn't a pretty one no it wasn't kevin thanks so much for everything that you're doing for really taking this one on and uh, keep writing about it because, you know, A, you're good at it <laughs> and, and people need to know, they need to know the, some of the gory details. I hate to put it that way, but maybe that's the only thing that will shock us into uh, action and reality. Yeah. And it was interesting. I mean, I, I wouldn't have written anything. There had been, Canadian reporters witnessing this, but I mean, yeah. one of the one of the aspects of of our modern media world is that there were no Canadian reporters covering this massive story that involved Canada, and and they couldn't get in once it got bad. So I was trying to write through secondhand information that I was receiving because it was the only on the ground reporting that existed for a little while, and so I I I felt compelled to provide the narrative of these people that you know yeah. in, in a different era reporters would have been there to capture, but when they weren't, I felt that they needed their voices to be heard. We're just old school, Kev. That's it. I know. <laughs> just old, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe just old. Kevin Newman, who's reported uh, on all Canadian networks and for ABC in the States, and of course, uh, is working now as a volunteer with the Veterans Transition Network. So anything you can do to help that group uh, if you feel like sending funds or whatever, that would be wonderful. So uh, take a look at the work, take a look at that website. And Kevin, thanks very much. We'll see you soon. Really nice talking to you again, Pam. Take care. Yeah, great.